Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My special guest today is Eduardo Briseño. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. Great to be here. Great to have you. Eduardo is with me today to share his experiences and his knowledge, which he also shares in his new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. And so he's here with us to help us develop a greater purpose, joy, growth, and impact through our small businesses and in our lives. To receive more information about the Howard business, including the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive discounts and join my monthly group coaching sessions through a Patreon membership, just visit thehowabusiness.com. I also encourage you to please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss any new episodes. Let me tell you a little bit more about Eduardo. Eduardo Briseño is a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in developing cultures of learning and high performance. Earlier in, in his career, he was the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works, which was the first company to offer growth mindset development services. And previously, he was a venture capital investor with Sprout Group. And his TED Talk, one of the things that I reviewed in preparing for this episode, his TED Talk, How to Get Better at Things You Care About, and his prior TED Talk, The Power of Belief, have been, been, have been viewed more than 9 million times on YouTube and other platforms. As I said, he's the author of the new book, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action, which has been selected as a must-read by the Next Big Idea Club, which is curated by Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Dan Pink. Eduardo is originally from Caracas, Venezuela. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics and engineering from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as an MBA and MA in education from Stanford. And most importantly, he continues in enjoying a lifelong learning uh, to this day. He currently lives, Eduardo currently lives in San Jose, California. Once again, Eduardo Briseño, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. Great to be here. Excellent, excellent. So I spent two years uh, in my early teens, 74, 75, living in Venezuela, uh, in my Quetilla. So it was a wonderful experience. Uh, when, when did you uh, immigrate or, or do you still live in both places? What's your situation now? Uh, I was born in 75 when you were in Venezuela. Is was, that right? So I'm a lot time. older than you. <laughs> no. And um, and I lived there for 16 years. I thought I would live my whole life there. So unexpectedly, I ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then I uh, moved around in the U.S. and ended up in California. Yeah, wonderful. It was a wonderful place. It was a shock for me uh, being this kid growing up. I'm, my, I'm a, a son of Cuban immigrants. So, of course, I had the advantage of speaking the language, which was advantageous. But the Venezuelans, at least in my experience when I was there, are so hospitable, as, as most Latin Americans are, right? Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. And it was a time of a lot of uh, prosperity and and positive outlook in that country, right? Yeah, things have changed, but it was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, beautiful place, too, naturally speaking. The, 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 the landscape is just so diverse and so beautiful. Um, but many years ago, I have not been back. I have many friends that I've stayed in touch with from that era who have moved to all different parts of the world, including South Florida because of the uh, situation in Venezuela. But um, anyway, thanks for reliving that with me for a moment. Let's talk about your background 
And one of the things, of course, that stood out, as I mentioned in the bio, is all of your education. So what were you thinking you wanted to do when you grew up when you were in school? I wasn't thinking. I was just, <laughs> uh, you know, I went to school and I was like just sitting there listening to the teacher and just supposed to get good grades. So I was just studying for the test and learned to just put my head down and do what I was told. And so I ended up, it was not, I didn't have any passion. I didn't have any interest. I was just kind of grinding it out. And that's how I ended up going to a good university, but studying something that didn't particularly interest me. I studied chemical engineering um, and finance, which I was a little more interested in. But I ended up, you know, working in investment banking because it was a high paying job and then venture capital because it was a high paying job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm very grateful. I was very privileged to work with incredible like businesses and, and entrepreneurs. But after several years of doing that, um, I I got sick. I got a repetitive strain injury called, called myofascial pain syndrome, which um, I started using. I started being a lot of pain, but also losing the function to use my hands. Wow. And I met people with the same condition who couldn't use their hands anymore for more than 10 minutes a day. So that got me into a complete life pivot of trying to figure out what was going on with me, which was difficult. Um, and, but also realizing that I can't take my hands for granted. So I can't take my ability to do things for granted. So I better, while I have my life, while I have my hands, I better do something meaningful that I feel is going to make an impact in other people's lives. And that's why I went to grad school in search of, you know, something that felt more meaningful to me. Are you still challenged with that condition? No, you know, it, it was a very long journey. I, I ended up using speech recognition software for three years and wow. stretching for a, um, an hour and a half every day for three years. I ended up spending six weeks in DC getting a particular treatment every every day. But gradually I healed and luckily I'm I'm back to hundred percent. Do they know what the what leads to this? Is what what is the yeah. the cause? Yeah. yeah. So I in my mind, you know, I wanted to perform, I wanted to do the best job possible. And so in my mind, I wanted to be sprinting every day. I wanted mm -hmm. to be like the whole day, I wanted to be giving my best. And and that meant like I could have done this in a relaxed way. I could have done this in a different way, holding my body differently. But I, I was, I was tensing my muscles the whole day. And because of that, like the brain, muscles are very malleable. And so when muscles are are contracted all the time, they lose the ability to relax. They become mm -hmm. actually um, short, and 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 you can measure the range of motion being a lot less. And right. so when it becomes hard and then the um, the blood can't go into the muscle anymore, so the, the, the muscle can't heal, uh, like muscles are supposed to be, have some stress and then heal and that makes them stronger, but it didn't, it couldn't get into that cycle. So there's a lot of kind of uh, science behind it, but it was basically because I was contracting my muscles all the time. Yeah. This, this pressure that you put on yourself to excel is this who you were even as a child or do you think it was uh, partly as a result of uh, nurturing or influences? Where do, where do you think it came from? I think that I didn't have any ideas on what else to do. You know, yeah. like one thing I could do well was I could try to get good grades and I didn't have any better idea. I see. Uh, and and I, looking back, you know, before I got to school, I love to play. I love to explore, tinker, experiment, ask questions. But when, so I was a great kind of motivated and alive learner until mm -hmm. I got to school. And there's a lot of research that shows that 
kids ask tons of questions until they start going to school because right. they they start sitting on the chair and being talked at you know in my case i was learning about like history facts of people and dates and places that, they, that i didn't relate to for example things that i didn't think i would ever use and so then like you know what i was told to do is to get good grades and i didn't have any better idea on what to do so i try to do my best at that yeah yeah, no, I get it. It was I was fascinated as I was doing the research and understanding this challenge that you had and the whole point about creativity, which we'll come back to. But but that that's what I have observed is our education system, I think mostly around the world for that matter, but certainly in the States, it's about we are we are guided to perform within the box, not to be creative, really. I'm sure there are some fields of study where that's not the case, but certainly as you were uh, studying chemical engineering, it wasn't about creativity necessarily. And then the whole method through which we learn in our education system is about not making mistakes. It's about being within the box. It's not about being creative, which leads to potentially making mistakes. And so I think that's part of where where we get that constricted, but then we, if we turn to business ownership, we need to tap back into that creativity, right? Right. I mean, and we have been trained to just try to minimize mistakes all the time and try to do everything perfectly. And, and so we have to realize this trap that we've gotten into and how that's preventing us from learning what might work better than what we know. And so entrepreneurship involves so much exploration and experimentation, and we we have been trained not to do that. That's right. That's right. So when did you develop any kind of a sense that you might want to start your own business? Well, it was in venture capital. I The idea of entrepreneurship was completely foreign to me because growing up in Venezuela, mm-hmm. I didn't know any entrepreneur. My dad worked in the same big company for 30 years and everybody I knew had a, like just a job for a big company, which is not there's nothing wrong with. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. But yeah. when I started working in venture capital, it was all about funding entrepreneurs. So we would right. meet with people who were trying to create a new world and new technologies every day. And it was amazing to me that these people had these bold visions and ambitions. Um, and so, so that kind of through that, I started then learning. I also kind of got the sense that there was so much capital in the venture capital industry that whether I was working there or not, these great companies were going to get funded. And so that's part of what made me feel that, my existence wasn't making a difference in anybody mm. else's life in my in my experience. And I didn't have a lot of experience and wisdom to be advising these entrepreneurs with with great insights. And that's how I felt. Mm. And but I learned in that process that there's this thing called social entrepreneurship, which is about, you know, creating things that, you know, can make a, a meaningful difference in people's lives. And these are things that might not happen if a social entrepreneur doesn't step up and 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 do it and get funding. Um, so that's that's how I learned about entrepreneurship originally. Got it. So tell me the story of what leads to uh, starting your first your first business, the sure. mindset uh, mindset group, right? Mindset Works. Mindset yeah, so, Works. Yeah. yeah you, so, you founded it and were the CEO of Mindset Works. That's right. I I went to grad school at Stanford in search of. I was interested in social entrepreneurship. I also studied education. My my wife had become a teacher, so I became interested mm-hmm. in education. And I worked on several different ideas in business school. And that's also how I studied kind of social entrepreneurship. I listened to lots of entrepreneurs talk about their experiences. And at at the time, it was kind of before podcasts. So I didn't have the privilege Mm -hmm. of being able to like listen to your podcast. Right. Um, And so I um, I one of the I was introduced to a professor at Stanford by the name of Carol Dweck, who wrote a book called Mindset. And uh, 
and she's she's been she's coined this this term and and done tons, tons of research on it and she was looking for somebody with a business background to partner with to bring a growth mindset out into the world at the time you know nobody knew kind of what growth mindset was and so I I partnered with her and with a former kind of student of hers and we co-founded Mindset Works and again my idea there was I was you know I was the CEO for over a decade there but I thought okay, we're, I'm going to be the CEO here. We're going to create a company. And that's what we did. But unexpectedly, again, eventually, you know, I started doing public speaking to get the message out. Unexpectedly, I later got an opportunity to write a book. So a lot of these things were things that I haven't planned, but yeah. opportunities that opened up and then I they, they sounded interesting. So I worked really hard to, to go pursue them. Yeah, and you took it and you took advantage of them as they came to you. So give me the definition, especially in that context of growth mindset. Yeah, growth mindset. When when a lot of people have heard of it, when we ask people what a growth mindset is, we hear a lot of different things, like it's being open minded or resilient or working hard, persevering. Uh, a growth mindset is not those things. A growth mindset is a perspective about the nature of human beings. Specifically, it's the belief that we can change, the belief that our abilities and qualities are things that we can develop, as opposed to things that are fixed within us. So, for example, when we think that great leaders are great leaders because they're natural leaders. That would be an example of a fixed mindset, which is the opposite of a growth mindset. And when, when we think that the reason people are great at something is because they're naturals or because, or the reason they can't do something is because they're inept and that can't change. What that does is we don't, we don't do anything to change. We don't do anything to improve because we assume that we just have to find what our abilities are and apply them. So that's one, one effect of it. Another effect is that when, when things get hard in a fixed mindset, we take that as evidence that we are incapable. And so we right. say, I'm not good at this. Let me try something else. So we give up versus in a growth mindset, we try to observe and learn and ask for feedback and try different strategies. So there's a lot of kind of behaviors that, that follow from whether we think that we and others can change. Uh, and that allows us to grow and to and to get better at whatever we want to get better at, whether personal or professional. And so at Mindset Works, you were helping organizations and individuals apply that growth, develop and apply that growth mindset. Is that correct? Well, at Mindset Works, we focused on schools, uh, on uh, school see. districts and schools, helping them uh, develop a, a growth mindset culture, because there's a lot of instructional practices that tend to foster a fixed mindset sure. in kids, just like you were saying, like, right. for example, everything gets graded, gets a number or a letter. So, so then kids get the sense that school is not a place to learn. It's a place to perform. It's a mm -hmm. place to minimize mistakes, just what you were saying before. Um, so, but eventually businesses became more interested in building a growth mindset culture, a learning culture. It started with Microsoft in 2014 when they, the, the, the new CEO, Satya Nadella, uh, was promoted to CEO. And then lots of businesses have become interested in building a growth mindset culture. And so I, they started kind of reaching out to me to come do keynotes for them to, to educate and, and motivate their employees. And that has led me to what I do now, which is just, just that, helping businesses develop yeah. learning cultures. As I was doing the research and, and, and to further expand on this concept of the growth mindset and, and, and the way I say it sometimes is the story that we've told ourselves or in our upbringing, we, and then we reaffirm for ourselves, right? We reprove ourselves, right? That we can't do a certain thing. Tell Share briefly the story of leading to your first TED Talk, which forced you to go outside of your comfort zone. I'd love if you would share that story. 
Absolutely. So this was the early days of Mindset Works, and I was working really hard uh, with my colleagues, a handful of colleagues, and we were bootstrapping the company, so we didn't raise any money um, by design. And one of my board members said, you know, Eduardo, we're trying to educate people about a growth mindset. Part of what needs to happen is people need to know who you are. Like you need to get out there. You need to network in Silicon Valley. Nobody knows who you are. And I said, Ellen, I totally agree with you. I, I'll do that at some point. But right now I'm just really busy. I have so much in my plate. Um, but a couple of months later, uh, Carol Dweck was asked to do a TEDx talk and she couldn't do it. And I realized, oh, you know, like this is going to be a lot of work. It's definitely outside of my comfort zone. But if I it's, it's only 10 minutes, if I work really hard, I can create a, a great script. I can memorize it and I can deliver it. Hopefully, you know, I can take on the challenge. Um, and that could be something that can reach a lot of people. So for six weeks, I first like worked really hard on the script, getting a lot of feedback from Carol and from others. I went to Carol's office. We practiced together. Um, and and then I practiced a lot, like actually delivering it. I videotaped myself. I would send a video to friends who would give, give me feedback. I, I, I grew up an extreme introvert so looking mm. people in the eye is very difficult for me so i put pictures of people in front of me and i like i i practice looking at people uh, or having people in front of me as i spoke uh, and i had as a strategy i was i would get so nervous in front of people that i had as a strategy that when i was on stage i didn't look at people i looked at the back wall and the lights uh, because i thought that i would blank out if i just looked at people <laughs> so i was able to get up there and deliver it for 10 minutes as i planned and that that talk has over four million views now, and and um, it it is something that then led to organizations reaching out to me to do keynotes there. And surprising to me, I enjoy public speaking, and surprising to me, you know, something that I've become good at and I continue to improve, of course. Um, so it's it's, be, it's become what I do. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. That's that's a. Uh inspirational and, and so many people struggle with public speaking obviously that's why it's so important and i do believe that as small business owners we may not have to go give a ted talk but we we have to be able to be comfortable to communicate our value proposition and to to share that depending on the size of the audience and and so i think that's one of the things that that makes small business owners very uncomfortable so thanks for sharing that all right so what do you mean by it's obviously the title of your book by the performance paradox what does that mean yeah the performance paradox is the counterintuitive phenomenon that if all we do is perform our performance suffers so um if all we're doing is trying to do things as best as we know how trying to minimize mistakes we stagnate that actually if we just try to do something as best as we can it works. We get better when we're novices. So when we, you know, if I want to start playing tennis or, you know, creating a video, if I just try to do it, I will learn something because I'm so bad. I don't need great learning strategies. But once I become proficient, mm -hmm. just doing the activity doesn't, in, doesn't get us to improve. In order to improve, we have to go beyond the known. We have to try things that may or may not work. We have to like listen to podcasts such as yours to get ideas on what I could do differently. We need to experiment, solicit feedback, think about mistakes, discuss mistakes. Those are all things that are different 
from just focusing on getting things done. Uh, and so getting things done and performing is important. The what I call the performance zone is really important because that's how we get things done. But the book is about how can we do that and also include the learning zone in our work and lives uh, so that we balance the two and, and alternate between the two and also so that we integrate the two so that we we learn while doing while getting things done we do that in a way that's going to lead to insight and to development of skills so that we can grow and achieve greater results over time as individuals teams and organizations so i haven't had a chance to read the book yet but obviously it's somewhat autobiographical because this this sounds like a lot of what you did to yourself when we were talking about your issue with your hands right yeah, there's definitely st stories of over 60 people there. One of them is me. And so I do share some of my own stories. But the, the book is, is yeah, it's very story-based and strategy-based to to share what great performers do. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is also very much research-based. Um, and, and, and this work that I started... Uh, um, it, it kind of, it was seeded from my mentor, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, which is the belief that we can change. And how this book ties to that is that in order, like we need to believe that we can change, but we also need to know how to change. And that's yeah. what this book is about is what can we do in order to change and improve? And those two things go hand in hand together. You know, as small business owners, as entrepreneurs, what I have found often, almost all the times is that part of how we got to that early success is by just outworking everybody else, right? Just it's all in. And and I am a believer that you have to do that, at least for that initial launch. You were bootstrapping a business, so even more so, right? But we reach a point then where I find that that becomes our identity and it's hard to let go of that. It's almost like we feel guilty if we're not working 24-7. And that leads to what you're talking about here as it, I apply it in my mind to business. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in the U.S. You know, we mm -hmm. we tend to when we introduce ourselves, we talk, tend to talk about what we do. So that's part do. of our identity. Mm -hmm. um, and, the you know, hard work, like you say, is, is great. We just can work in a smarter way so that our effort, you know, has greater results if we're engaging both in the learning zone and the performance zone. This is Henry Lopez briefly pausing this episode to invite you to schedule a free coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business plans and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner myself, I understand the challenges you're experiencing and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and maybe exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching consultation, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to speaking with you soon. So you you lay out kind of like a formula, and I, I, I saw this on your website and other places. I wonder if we could walk through that at a high level of this, you know, this, this formula that leads to us becoming, as you say, unstoppable. It starts with the growth mindset, as you've described, that we can change, that we can grow. That applies in all aspects as I'm thinking about it as a business owner. And as you think about it, obviously it's the, it's the things you change, you share Like, can I deliver a Ted talk? And if I tell myself that I can't, then I won't, but it's also continuing to learn and changing this particular component that we just chatted about which is that all I do is work, 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 and expect to achieve perfection every time. 
then then the learning zone getting into the learning zone is when we know how to grow right that component of it that's what you were partly just explaining correct yes and then shared why explain why that comes into the formula growth mindset plus learning zone plus shared why why is that component important yeah so if we think about how what makes an effective and motivated learner, right? If, if we're going to be an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur, create a new reality, we need to learn and, and drive change. So what makes somebody effective at that is those three things. One is believing that I can change and that it leads to lots of behaviors, knowing how to change both me and kind of my team and other people. And the third is having like a why or a purpose, a reason to put in the hard work, both in the learning zone and the performance zone, because, you know, this does take effort. And so why, why do you care? Why is that important to you? Um, it's, it's whether it is personally or professionally, wherever we want to apply our effort to, we need to care. We need to have a purpose. And it's those three components that we want to build, not just in ourselves, but in our team. When we're an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur and want to build a culture in our team, right. we need to communicate why is this work that we do important? What, what impact does it have on people? And we tend to think that if we say that once, other people will get it and then you'll, they'll become enamored with the mission like we are and then we won't have to say it again. But leaders are nine times more likely to be perceived as under-communicative than over-communicative. You know, people tend to remember a lot less than we think they will. And the brain takes time to rewire. And so we need to really emphasize and repeat these, these important messages on a regular basis and make them part of how we communicate. Yeah, that, that's such a huge takeaway, Eduardo, because I, I found that to be the case, uh, that point. Uh, in small businesses, we, we think that because it's always in our mind and we've talked about it and it's on the website and it's wherever that that people have heard it enough, but that's not the case. I think that we are we we are challenged as business leaders to communicate it in different ways, communicate it through example, communicate it through action. But I think you're so right that we assume everybody gets it, but that's not the case. But the key thing here as well is not just my personal why, but if I'm leading a team it's that collective why that is important for me as a leader to establish and communicate and get everybody on the same page. Yes. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I made a mistake when I was an entrepreneur regarding this, which is when I was recruiting people to join my team, the only thing I cared about is that they were passionate about our mission. Hmm. And in retrospect, you know, that is important. And, and that is great that I did that. But I didn't pay enough attention to what experiences and skills are these people starting with? Because we were we were trying to build a, a culture of learning and growth. And we were saying, we're going to have the strongest learning and growth culture in the world. We can develop anything. Uh, but but skills, they yeah, we can develop any skills, but that takes time. And so what we should have done is... Um, and what we eventually learned to do is is assess for that passion and purpose, which we can continue to to support, like you said. Um, but then also kind of assess what are the skills that are needed to get, you know, on to, to be effective in the job from day one. And then from there, continue to grow so that we can continue to become more and more excellent. And like you said, it's not just about repeating kind of the same words all the time, but, you know, embedding these things that are important to us into everything we do. And then as we model that behavior, as, as events happen and we respond to those behaviors in effective ways, just pointing that out. This is this is how we want to behave. This is, a, you know, Katie here 
you know, she like she encountered this challenge and this is what she did. And this is what we want to do more of. Or if we failed at something, hey, like, here's what we failed to do here. Yeah, well said. All right. I want to go back to making mistakes, making errors, as you call it, the unlocking the power of mistakes. So uh, tell me a little bit more about that, because, again, as you just shared, you, you help organizations with not just for the individual leader, but but leading a team. So what are some other tips you can share there on unlocking the power of mistakes? Yeah, so chapter five of the book is all about mistakes and mistakes. I think most of us have a sense that mistakes are important source of learning um, because if we make mistake, it's an opportunity to learn. And that's true. It's even like more true than we tend to think. It, ter- it turns out that from when we are in our mid twenties on, the main driver of neuroplasticity in our brain that we can that we can proactively elicit is through mistakes. The way that the brain rewires and becomes smarter is by making a prediction and having that prediction turn out to be wrong. And so when we take on challenges in the learning zone and experiment and try something new, um, and we we it turns out that it doesn't work. That's that's an amazing learning opportunity. And of course, when it does work, then we've, we've, we've uncovered a new strategy. So mistakes are super powerful. We want to make mistakes. But on the other hand, mistakes lower performance, right? And mistakes are problematic in, in different ways. Absolutely. And so what, in a small business, it could be it could be highly impactful, a mistake. Absolutely. That and so what chapter five is about is about becoming like understanding mistakes in a more nuanced way. And I talk about four different kinds of mistakes. One is called the stretch mistakes, which is the mistakes that we make when we go beyond the known and we experiment with something new. But, and, and that's super valuable. We want to be doing all the time to- that all the time, but doing it in a way that's not going to cause significant harm, right? We want to do it in, in 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 as an experiments that are not going to be impacting us significantly. Then there's second, there's the the high stakes mistakes, which are mistakes that can create significant damage, and we want to we want to minimize the probabilities that we're going to make those mistakes. So when when there's that risk. We want to be in our performance zone. We want to try to do things as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. Then there's the sloppy mistakes, which is when we do something that we already should have known better. Uh, And sometimes these things are not important and I kind of laugh at them. I share them with friends and family so they can laugh too. But sometimes sloppy mistakes can create significant damage. And so we can reflect, how can I avoid this mistake in the future? What can I change? And often what we often uncover there is an opportunity to foster more focus or to change our habits and systems and tools so that we avoid that mistake from repeating. And then finally, there's the aha moment mistakes, which is when we do something as we intended, but then we realize that it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, and those are precious. It's, it's something that um, aha moments are things that we need to pay attention to and, and reflect and learn from them. But it's harder to elicit those proactively. I mean, the, the best way to, to elicit those proactively is to just solicit feedback frequently and often, which I think is a super, super powerful strategy in the workplace. But the key here is that there are there's a performance zone and the learning zone. We want to be mindful about when we want to be focused on performance, when we want to be focused on learning, how do we minimize the damage that comes from mistakes in learning, and how can we integrate the two so that most of the time we're getting things done in a way that's also going to lead to improvement. Okay. Uh, tell me the first two again. The sure. fourth was sloppy mistakes. Fourth was aha. The first one was what again? Stretch mistakes. Stretch mistakes. That's when yeah. we're experimenting, we're stretching. And then the second is high stakes mistakes. Which we want to try to avoid. Okay. I love this because it gives us, uh, as business owners, a formula, an approach 
to break these down and to use this approach either when I'm coaching or providing feedback or dealing with the aftermath of a mistake. And as I'm providing ongoing performance reviews, I can put them into these buckets, right? And I can start to create a culture around uh, that there are different types of mistakes. Now, not all mistakes are equal. Some mistakes are good. Some mistakes are not so good. Especially I love the sloppy mistakes definition because that's where I do need you to execute our systems as consistently as possible, right? We're always going to make human mistakes, but that's why we have systems in place. Absolutely. And the sloppiness there is not acceptable, but if you are in a special situation or you're, or you're discovering or you're developing, that's where it's okay to make mistakes in a work environment. If I'm getting it so far. Yeah, absolutely. You are. What I would add is that, um, we we do want to be careful about kind of weaponizing mistakes and kind okay. of punishing others when they make, for example, sloppy mistakes in the sense that what we see as a sloppy mistake, they might see as an aha moment mistake or as a stretch mistake. And okay. so we want to like try to act like a coach and ask, hey, how are you thinking about this? You know, what, what are you learning from this? What are you going to change going forward? And then because if they feel like they can't make any mistake, they're just going to be in the performance zone all the time. They're going to stagnate, right? They're not going to take experiments and risks. But, you know, but if if we keep having the same conversation and say, hey, I, you know, this happened last month. And like, why are we repeating this mistake? You know, did, did do you feel like you change your systems? And so if people aren't changing and aren't improving and aren't actually growing, then, you know, we want to support them, try different strategies. But if if after a lot of tries, that's the change is not happening, then we might conclude, well, this, for whatever reason, this doesn't seem to be a good fit, right? It's not, we're trying to elicit growth and we're not growing. Uh, we're trying different strategies and it's not working. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for that clarification. I always look at that, those performance issues sometimes also as where have the tools, the systems perhaps need improvement or have failed or or broken or not complete. And so we need to look at both sides of it. Yeah. Great. Th- thanks for sharing that. That's very actionable. I think um, we talked about uh, curiosity, but I want to come back to that because again, it's such an important thing that as we've talked about gets uh, squeezed out of us, gets, uh, you know, uh, gets uh, indoctrinated out of us in my opinion, but Tell me about that. What, what do you think leads to this suppression other than what we've talked about already, which is our education system that suppresses that childhood curiosity that's so powerful? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I do think in our childhood, um, we, we're we so curious uh, naturally. Um, and then it does get suppressed, I think, a lot by school, sometimes by parents and like constraining, like do mm-hmm. this, don't do that. Um, and, and I think as if we can reconnect with that self-driven learning, like, what do I care about? What am I curious about? What questions do I have? And asking more questions, then we discover more. We get to know other people better. Often one, one, uh, one amazing kind of source of curiosity and discovery for me that I learned in grad school was how much I can learn about other people's experiences and what they're thinking about. Because I used to make up all, and I still do it. It's just natural. Like, we we make assumptions about other people's intentions or what they're thinking or you know we tend to think that they think like us and that they have similar experience to ours um but then when we ask questions and rather than kind of make assumptions thinking that we know then they we're i I find that i'm almost always wrong like i just i just discover some some truth about somebody else uh, that makes me grow and makes me understand the world better and relationships better 
And so uh, that I think is a big opportunity is just to ask more questions, listen better and 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 think about, remember that we can never know 100%. And so that helps us kind of ask questions and listen better and, and learn more. Be curious about other people's perspectives and, and how they're coming upon making these decisions or not doing something or doing something. I think you share in the book as well how some of the icons, the names that we might know and how they go about their learning strategy. Could you share a couple of examples there? Sure. You know, one one person I, I talk about in the book is Beyonce, which is a great performer. Um, and and so when we see a great performer, whether it is a great athlete or somebody like Beyonce or Cirque du Soleil, I talk about as well, we only see their performance zone. Right. We only see them do the things they already know how to do really well. And they look so natural because they're so fluid at it. Yeah. But what we don't see, right, is what how they got there or what they do when when they're not on stage and so when Cirque du Soleil is not on stage if we see them practicing they are making a lot of mistakes they're missing a lot of the timing um because they're working on the next level of challenge and the the show and the skills are always continuing to evolve Beyonce um after she gets to the hotel room after the show she reviews video and she says oh this camera's angle didn't work or my hair didn't work or we should have been moving differently here. And she creates notes that she shares with her colleagues and they meet the next day, they practice a few things to tweak. Uh, and that's how they become, you know, so good. And that's what the best performers do. We, you know, sometimes we are afraid of feedback, of asking for mm -hmm. feedback or, or, or examining mistakes because we think those things are the things that are for novices or people who are not that good. Mm -hmm. But the, if you look at the best people in the world, they continue to get feedback all the time and, and, and to experiment to get even better. Yes, it's an interesting, I, I get the point on the feedback, so powerful, but also I think that we, you know, even I probably buy into the thought, well, it's done, it's in the past, let's just move forward, don't overlook it. In other words, how do how does that looking at what you've just done not feed into this perfectionism spiral, though? Well, first of all, in a growth mindset, perfection is unattainable, right? Because if, if we are perfect at anything, we can't further improve. That's mm -hmm. the definition of a fixed mindset. And so starting with the assumption that I'm never going to be perfect, you know, it, perfection or better is a direction. And if it's something that is important to us, we, we don't want to be trying to improve at everything because that's not effective. But mm -hmm. what what do I care about? Like if I want to have a better relationship with my spouse, for example, Am I doing anything in the learning zone to try to get better? Am I trying any different strategies to communicate with that person? Um, and, and so it's not to in search of perfection, but it's in search of this is something is important to me. I would love to deepen my relationship with my spouse. You know, am I doing anything differently or am I doing the same thing every day? Well said. Well said. That makes sense. Okay. The book again is called The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Uh, why did you write it, Eduardo? And ideally, who do you believe it's for? I wrote it because I I had this big insight in working with Carol Dweck and with her customers at Mindset mm -hmm. Works that I had gotten I had made this mistake in my career where you know I thought that the way to succeed was just to work hard, put my head down, do the best I knew, try to minimize mistakes, and I realized how that and a fixed mindset had gone in the way of my goals, and then I started sharing this insight with in workshops, you know, with, with business leaders. And it led to strong insights for them and, and amazing discussions for them as a team to figure out how can we engage better in the learning zone as a team? What tools and systems do we use? 
So then I, I said, okay, this is, this is something that I want more people to know about. So mm-hmm. I did a TEDx talk on it, a uh, second TEDx talk. Um, and, and that also became very popular it has again, also more than 4 million views It's been put in the TED.com website and it's a TED, TED at work. Um, and then the book was a, a reason, a way to get this message and these strategies to a lot more people, because I, I'm a public speaker. I do keynotes for large companies that hire me. That's expensive and it's not accessible to lots of people. So the book is something that anybody can access and and learn from what the best performers individuals teams and organizations do uh, in order to continue to get better at whatever they care about um in listening to you and in reading the book as a small business owner where do you suggest that that if i if you were speaking to me as a small business owner where i should start with adopting this this performance paradox understanding it applying it in my business where, where should i start besides you know read the book lauren yeah. but where do i start well, if you if you want to start kind of as an individual, you want to grapple with this individually, then I would start with what is kind of one thing that I want to work on and get better at as a leader, as an entrepreneur. And then remind yourself of what that is every morning. Identify one strategy that you can use to try to get better at that. So to do that, you can just do a, a Google search. How do people get better at listening? Or how do people get better at connecting with customers or at communicating the value proposition, whatever you want to improve? Um, and 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 identify what 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 is one habit that you're going to be engaging in to get better and building that skill. And it's important to remind yourself every morning of what that is, in my opinion, because it takes effort. And then every day we can be mindful about opportunities to work at that thing. So that's if you want to work, start as an individual. If you're already kind of bought into the importance of a learning culture and a high performance culture, and you want to bring your other colleagues along, I think a, a great way is to share, like, for example, my, my, my TED talk on it is 10 minutes. You have everybody watch it. And then you get into a meeting and you just ask, what do people think? Like, mm-hmm. is this important to us? Do we want to engage in more learning zone? And how, what is one thing that we want to work on? Is it like soliciting more feedback with each other? Is it sharing more ideas with each other? And let's, let's identify one thing we want to try differently. And then every two months, just have another meeting to check in and say, how are we working as a team? What, do we want to work on this, continue working on this thing we're working on or something else? I love that. And that only... Not only are you then applying that and making progress overall as an organization, but you're teaching those individual leaders how to do it for themselves and in their teams at a lower level, right? Or within their departments, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Uh, again, the book is called The the Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. So it's definitely on my to-read list. Uh, by the time you listen to this episode, it will have just been released, which is exciting. Is there, I know you're a big reader. Is there another book that you've read recently or that comes to mind that you would recommend to us? Sure. Right now I'm reading a book called um, Plan of the Cave Bear, which is a historical classic. Yeah, It's an old classic. I I just read it for the first time. It's amazing about kind of prehistory and uh, Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens is really eye-opening for me. But in terms of this work, I'm enjoying that very much. In terms of this work, along with my book, there's the kind of the, the sister book to it is Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is about the belief of a growth mindset. I think for entrepreneurs, a wonderful book is The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's all, again, about how to, how to learn um, and how to continue to build your business in a, in a very systematic way. 
Yeah, but I've got I've read Carol's book. I've got the Lean Startup on my desk. I've read it once, but I need to read it again and go through it again. And of course, Clown of the K-Bears has been a long time since I read it. I always remember that being one of my sister's favorite books, and she's the one that actually turned me on to it many, many years ago. Thanks for those recommendations. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, to learn more about the book as well as about you, we should go to your website, correct? Well, my website is brisenio.com, my last name.com, B-R-I-C-E-N-O.com. And so I have a newsletter there and some free resources on, on strategies to build a growth mindset. And um, I am active on LinkedIn. And the book, The Performance Paradox, is available wherever books are sold. Absolutely. And we'll have a link to it as well as to Eduardo's website on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. All right, we'll wrap it up, Eduardo. What's what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation that we've had about the performance paradox, this mindset, applying it in particular to me as a small business owner? What's one thing you would want us to take away from the conversation? I would encourage people to think about. I think I think a lot of us, and it happened to me, we we get into living life. Uh, kind of not really mindful about what we care most about and what's most important to us. We get wrapped in what society expects of us. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how do, how do I want to make my life count? How do I want to be a good steward of my life? What is important to me? And then how do I not just perform on that, but how do I go beyond what I know, engage in the learning zone with, with regards to that, which is most important to me. I love that. You know, I, when I think of the word mindful, in addition to the definitions you've given us and the context you've given us here in this conversation, it, what I think of also as well that I encourage people to do, including myself, is to sometimes pause and take time to reflect and think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the uh, founders of experiential learning uh, pointed out that we don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. Mm. So I absolutely agree with what, what you said. Love that. All right. Again, if we want to learn more, we go to your website. Tell us that again, please. Briseno.com. B-R-I-C-E-N-O.com. Thank you, Henry, for having me. Oh, this has been a great conversation. Eduardo, thanks for taking the time to be with me today. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Again, The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Thanks for sharing your story, inspirational, and thanks for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you for all you do. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining us on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Eduardo Briseño. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including The How of Business YouTube channel and my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.